You know it's serious when the pastor brings two Bibles. <laughs> no, it's not that serious. You're not in trouble, don't worry. It's, uh, I have a reason for it. We're going to talk about an interesting word today. The title of our message is, Begotten is a Big Word. And we're going to look at the word begotten. I'll get into that here in just a second. But uh, we are sort of bridging, branching off from our sermon series on the Holy Spirit that we've been talking about. Uh, we've spent the last several weeks talking about things like, number one, how deep the Holy Spirit's work is. We so desperately need the Holy Spirit because He has He works on the unseen things, the hidden things in our hearts and minds and the way we think. We so desperately need the Holy Spirit because of that work. Our great need of Him. That all three parts of the Godhead work together to save us. Sometimes we think it's only Jesus that works to save us. The Father wants to kill us. Jesus wants to save us and the Holy Spirit is somewhere out there, kind of, maybe. No, all three parts of the Godhead work together for our salvation. And last week we talked about the fact that the Holy Spirit leads us toward new mission and mission fields. We talked about our new mission and vision for community outreach and service last week. Amen? Are you still excited? Everyone was excited about that last week. Are you still excited? Good. Hopefully that's a sermon you don't forget by Wednesday. A lot of pastors talk about how everybody's amening on Saturday or Sunday, and by the time you get to prayer meeting on Wednesday, everybody forgot what, they, what you preached, right? Hopefully that's not the case, especially for our last message. But today, uh, we're going to talk about a word that's important and often confused. It's the word begotten. And the reason that it's important is because it, it, for some people have been misled or misunderstood uh, what it means that Jesus was begotten of the Father. Does that mean that somehow he is only the Father's Son and not on equal terms with the, with the Father? It has ramifications into the Trinity, that big word there. Some people don't like that word. I'm not afraid of that word. Um, the Trinity or the Godhead. So we're going to look at that word begotten. Have you heard that word before? You've, I'm, most of us have heard that word before because you've heard John 3.16 quoted before, right? So John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only, what? Begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. There it is, that word begotten. Now there's so much confusion surrounding this word and so much study has gone into this word that some have changed, uh, some Bible translations, the newer translations, will take that word begotten out of there because it's been so confusing to people and changed it to one and only. So God sent his one and only son. And that's not an incorrect translation, by the way. And that just goes to show you the different varieties and, and how difficult it is to communicate a language from an original language to another language and have, be as clear as it was in the original language. Does that make sense? It's extremely difficult. Those of you that speak more than one language know how hard it is sometimes to translate and uh, be able to communicate clearly across those languages because they're just some words that you can't quite find the right word for. And begotten isn't necessarily in that category, but it's much bigger than what we think when we think of the word begotten. Only begotten son or one and only son. Some translations have changed that. And the way that the Bible typically, uh, well, not, not typically, I should retract that. 
In some areas, the Bible uses the word begat in the traditional sense. The way we would think about it. Genesis chapter 5, I know I had the group, or our AV team, pull up all of Genesis chapter 5, but I'm going to turn there in both my Bibles. And so um, we're just going to look through it. We're not going to read through all of Genesis chapter 5 because that would be long and tedious and unnecessary. But I, I want you to see the differences in the different translations of the Scriptures here. ESV, by the way, some people say, well, the newer translations, even though they're literal word-for-word -word translations, aren't appropriate. Only the King James is appropriate because it's older. Well, here's the problem. As more New Testaments have been found in the Middle East, in the Holy Land, they've actually found older transcripts than what the King James Version was translated by. Does that make sense to everybody? So the King James Version was translated back in the 1600s or so, and uh, since the 1600s, they've found more original versions of the New Testament that are actually older than the scrolls that the King James Version was translated from. Isn't that interesting? So in some ways, your newer literal translations are more reliable than even the King James Version. How about that? Now, for those of you that may not know, there's a ton of Bibles out there. If you go to a bookstore, if you go to a Bible bookstore, there's all different translations. And the way to know what kind of Bible you pick up is you, you read the beginning, you read the preface, and they'll tell you what method they used. Now, the, the method that I like to use for Bible study, so I know exactly what the Bible is saying, are what's called literal word-for-word -word translations. A literal word-for-word -word translation is the, the technique where they literally look at the original language in the Greek or the Hebrew or the Aramaic, and they choose an English word that is as close to that original word as they could possibly find. Does that make sense to everybody? Literal word-for-word. -word. And then in the middle of the spectrum, you have Bibles like the New International Version. And they're kind of a mixture between literal word-for-word -word translation and some interpretation or con contextual understanding by the translator. So some sort of paraphrase. Does that make sense to everybody? So there's a spectrum. You have literal word-for-word, -word, you have a mixture between literal word-for-word -word and uh, interpretation or paraphrase, and then all the way on the other end we have Bibles like the Message Bible, the Clear Word Bible, um, uh, there's a couple others out there that aren't coming to mind right off the top of my head. But you have Bibles like that that are just purely paraphrased. They're purely the understanding of the person that was writing it, and they wrote it in, in their Bible. Does that make sense? Now, those are really good for reading, almost like you would read a book for uh, entertainment purposes. This is good entertainment. But it's not necessarily as reliable for study, for in-depth study, as a literal translation. Are you following that? I want to know exactly what Scripture says as close to what it said in the original for strict Bible study. Does that make sense? Now, what's interesting about this is that this word begotten is so deep, it's so broad, and, and brings in so many different meanings in, uh, in the original language that different words can be used to apply to the same word. Does that make sense? Are you following that? It's, it's somewhat confusing, but let's just read this from the King James first. Gen Genesis chapter 5 and verse 1. 
This is the book of the generations of Adam. In that day, we just lost a whole bunch of lights, so if it got dark up here, you know why. <laughs> uh, in the day that God created man in the, likeness of God, in the likeness of God, made he him. Male and female created he them and blessed them and called their name Adam. In that day when they were created, and Adam lived 130 years, verse 3, and begat. You see that word? Begat a son in his own likeness after his image and called him what? Seth. And it goes on and it uses that word. Now I'm going to read from the ESV, a newer literal translation. And I'm going to read you that, that, uh, that verse 3 is again. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. So they'd use the word fathered instead of begat. Did you see that? They use the word fathered instead of begat. Begat is somewhat of an ambiguous word, especially to us. You don't often hear people using that word. Uh, so here it shows fathered, fathered. And both verses refer to the fact that they were made in his own image or after his own likeness. And so this gets people kind of confused uh, about Jesus. Because some people say, well, if Jesus is the begotten of the Father, that means somehow he came from him, right? He came out of him. He didn't always exist. He, he came out of him at some point. He was begotten of the Father. There's a few problems with this. Uh, John chapter 3 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Well, there he's begotten. We see the word begotten referring to you make or create something that's like you. There's a few problems with this idea that Jesus came out of the Father. Here's the thing. If you beget something that's exactly like you, and, and you come from God who has no beginning and no ending, that means that Jesus has no beginning or ending either. I know that's kind of a deep philosophical idea, but just think about that for a second. If you beget something after your own likeness, and God's nature is that he has no beginning, if God begets something, he begets something with no beginning. It's nonsensical, isn't it? It doesn't make any sense. It's heavy because it doesn't make sense. And so the Bible clearly outlines for us that when it's referring to Jesus as being the only begotten of the Father, it's not talking about the fact that He came from the Father or emerged from the Father or didn't always exist. There's more to this word than just simply your nature. What I mean by nature is what you're made up of. Right? Now, it is true that God never fathered another human like he did with Jesus. That's true, isn't it? But that doesn't necessarily refer to the fact of whether or not Jesus is eternal. And I want to look deeper into this word, begotten. So, it was a big deal back then to be the firstborn. In some cultures, it's still a big deal to be the firstborn in your family. In fact, so much so in biblical times, that this whole lineage of Adam that we were reading here, guess who gets listed in these names or these sons of the descendants of Adam? It's always the firstborn. Now, it doesn't mean that these men didn't have other children. 
It just means that they were the firstborn. The descendants of Adam are the firstborn of their fathers. Are you hearing what I'm saying here? And it's significant to be the firstborn. It's significant in Bible times to be the firstborn. The first begotten or the only begotten of the Father. And I want to take you to an important passage. Let's go to Psalm 89. Psalm 89. And I appreciate you holding it on the screen. It makes me feel better about myself. You beat me there and it makes me feel bad. Psalm 89 and verse 20. Psalm 89 in verse 20. Now, this is a psalm of David kind of recalling his history, recalling his past, and uh, the story of David, and it kind of links it up to Jesus a little bit if you're paying attention, but I just want to hear you to hear the, the basic language here. I'm hearing myself they get played back to myself. I, I, I know that you all love me, and you're, you're probably watching the live stream while church is going, but if you could mute that, that would help. Psalm 89 and verse 20. I have found David my servant, and I have anointed, holy, I've anointed him with holy oil, with whom my hand shall be established. Mine arm also strengthen him. The enemy shall not exact upon him, nor the son of wickedness afflict him. And verse 27 says, um, Also I will make him my firstborn, higher than the kings of the earth. So it's talking about David being anointed. Anointed by Jesse and also anointed by God. The problem here is that David was not Jesse's firstborn son. But here the Bible refers to him as Jesse's firstborn son. So is the Bible lying? Is there some kind of confusion going on here? What's, what's happening? It's because the firstborn, the term firstborn, isn't just applied to birth order. It's applied to who gets the good stuff, who is the heir. And the father could choose Whichever child he wanted, normally, typically, it was the actual firstborn in birth order. But here, it's saying that Jesse is, is choosing David as his firstborn. I think he was, was he, was he the seventhborn? Is that right? Seventh or eighthborn to Jesse? And so here, the, the Bible's referring to David as Jesse's firstborn. Why? Because David was the one who got the blessing, who was anointed with the oil, who was given the kingdom. Are you following me? So it's significant that the one who receives the blessings, or the one who is the heir, or the one who gets all the authority is considered the firstborn. Are you with me? You're beginning to see how this begins to apply to Jesus as well. Be thinking about that as we go along. What could this possibly be about? Well, let's go to Hebrews chapter 11. Let's see another example. Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11. It's way at the end of the writings of Paul. Hebrews 11 and verse 17. This is the hall of faith. All the famous faithful people throughout the biblical times and kind of rehashing in a brief summary the, the story of Israel and what happened. Look at Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 17. It says, By faith Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac, and he that had received the promises 
offered up his what? Only begotten son. Who sees a problem with that verse? One or two of you. For a few of us. Okay, there's a problem with that verse. If you think of begotten in only literal birth terms. Because Isaac was not the only begotten son of Abraham. Abraham had fathered a, a, a son, and his name was Ishmael, with his handmaid Hagar. The difference here is, is that the begotten son, or the only son, or the firstborn son, is the son who receives the blessing as the heir of the father. So the word begotten here applies to the son of promise. The son who gets the authority, the blessings of being the firstborn, even though he's not the firstborn. Are you with me there? Just like David. David got the honor and the blessings of being the firstborn son, even though he wasn't the firstborn son. The father chose to give this son all of the authority, all of the family wealth, all of the blessings to this begotten son. He's not the only begotten son of Abraham. He is the second begotten son of Abraham. And in those days, by the way, it didn't matter who the mother was. If you're thinking that, well, that didn't come from his wife, Sarah. doesn't matter. The father can bestow the blessings of the begotten heir on whichever son he wants. All right, let's keep going with our train of thought here. So that's Hebrews 11. Now, there's some powerful language that applies to David and Jesus in Psalm chapter 2. David and Jesus in Psalm chapter 2. So we're going to go over there. As many of the Psalms are, many of them kind of have a dual meaning to not only the whoever's writing it, typically David and his experience, but also to Jesus. And this is another one of those that are sort of prophetic, a dual meaning. Psalm chapter 2 and verse 7. Psalm 2-7. This is my old Cambridge King James Bible with wide margins. The first Bible I had for ministry. Broke it out and dusted it off. Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 7. Or Psalm chapter 2, beginning in verse 7. I will, declare the I will declare the decree. The Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son, this day I have what? Begotten you. You art my son, this day I have begotten you. Now this is interesting, because it's referring to David, but also blessings, and also it, it applies to Jesus. And what we're going to see in this passage very clearly is that the Father, whether it be God the Father or Jesse the Father, is talking about the Son, David or Jesus, being begotten in reference to authority and inheritance. So let's keep reading here. It says in verse 8, Ask of me, and I will what? I will give you the, the heathen for thine inheritance, and the utmost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them with pieces of, like a potter's vessel. 
Be wise, therefore, O ye kings, be instructed, ye judges of the earth. So this is a psalm that wasn't directly talking about Jesus. It was talking about David. But it's in reference to the authority that would be given to David that was also foreshadowing Jesus. And the very last thing that Jesus said as he was ascending up into heaven, you remember what he said to his disciples? All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Remember that? Doesn't it sound very similar to Psalm chapter 2 there? Jesus knew that that was a a fulfillment. He was the begotten of the Father. Um, I want to take you to Acts chapter 13 now. Acts chapter 13 and show you something similar. Acts 13 and verse 30. And by the way, you're seeing that there is a much broader application to the word begotten than just simply a father has a son and that son comes from him and he's you know, of the same material. Begotten is a much bigger word just simply than genes being passed down. Are you with me there? It's a much bigger word. And this is why, this is why you see a difference between the old King James and newer translations. Because the newer translations recognize that the word begotten to us just simply means, well, I had a son and he's another human. You following that, yes or no? Because when I beget something, I beget something just like me, another human, right? And so the newer biblical translators recognized that the word beget is bigger and wider and broader, so in some cases, they've chosen a word other than beget or begat or begotten to bring in a term or a phrase that will communicate to us what it's actually saying. Does that make sense to everybody? That's why it's a different word. So in Acts chapter 13 and verse 30, it says, But God raised him, Jesus, from the dead. And when he was seen many days of them which came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses unto the people, and we declare unto you glad tidings, how much that the promise which was made to the fathers... What was the promise made to the fathers? Remember, they're thinking in Old Testament terms. So what was this promise? The land would be theirs, Right? The whole world would come to see their glory and their blessings. They'd be the head and not the tail. There would, no one would die at an old age or a young age. Uh, the new Jerusalem, the, the, the glory of the world, the Gentiles coming to their glory. This is the promise that they're referring to. So apparently something has happened that has made these New Testament Christians believe that absolutely the promises are yes and amen. Something has happened. Well, what what has happened? Verse 33. God has fulfilled the same. He's talking about the promise. Unto us, their children, the Old Testament people, in that He hath raised up Jesus. What? Again, as it is also written in the second Psalm, You are my Son. Today I have begotten you. So let me ask you this question. When was Jesus begotten? What's that say? 
when He was raised from the tomb. And and it's not to say that He wasn't begotten of the Father when He was born of Mary, but what they're saying is this word begotten is more to us than simply genes being passed down. This word begotten to us is a reference to the fact that all authority on heaven and earth, all the promises of God in Christ are yes and amen. All the authority, all the inheritance, everything that God wanted to give us has been confirmed and affirmed and the covenant is true and we know it because God the Father didn't leave the Son to rot in a grave. So the word begotten to them was much more simply than birth order. It had nothing to do with Jesus emerging at some point in eternity past from the the essence of the Father. That's such nonsense. There's some Adventists that get confused about this because apparently James White and his cohorts early on believed this stuff. They were confused. We were still coming out of a lot of Catholic confusion in those days. And by the way, the Catholics do believe something about that where Jesus at some point in eternity past emerged from the Father, but they also say, do you know what they also say? They say that the relationship, and this comes from C.S. Lewis, who I love, but he was Church of England. And Church of England is very much like um, Catholicism. And the Church of England taught this, and C.S. Lewis communicates this in his book, Mere Christianity. He says that the, the, the relationship between the Father and the Son was so strong that it became a person. The love was so powerful and dynamic and wonderful that the the love between the Father and the Son was so incredibly intimate that it became a person and that person was the Holy Spirit. So this idea that the Son emerged, the Holy Spirit isn't really God, and the Son emerged from the Father is not James White theology. It's not Ellen White theology. It's Catholic theology that has made its way into Adventism. It's Church of England. It's, and I love C.S. Lewis. I love some of the things he's written. It's powerful. It's intelligent. It's analogous to the, the truths of the kingdom of God, but it doesn't mean that he wasn't confused about some things. Just like all of us at times. Isn't that true? So this word begotten in this case has nothing to do with Jesus emerging from the Father or coming from Him or being birthed. It has to do with the fact that, the, that God had bestowed all of the promises, all of the blessings, all of the authority of the firstborn heir son, that's human language, upon Jesus. Is that making sense to everybody? has nothing to do with passing on genes. There's just a couple verses I want to take you to. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15. Colossians 1, 15. Colossians 1, 15. You're going to see this, this thing spelled out plainly right here. Colossians 1, 15. It says, speaking of Jesus in verse 15, who is the image of the invisible God. Let's unpack that phrase real quick. When you think of God the Father, who are you supposed to think of? 
If you learn nothing else from my ministry in the entire time that I'm here, I want you to understand this. We will all create for ourselves what we think God is like in our own head. The problem is it will be based on our experience, our education, our background, our, our life. We will create for ourselves our own God if we don't hold to that little phrase right there. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So if your idea of God doesn't match up with who Jesus is, your idea of God is wrong. If you think the Father's up there in the judgment wanting to kill you, your idea of God is wrong because that's not what we see in Jesus. If you believe that God is some harsh, exacting dictator, your idea of God is wrong because that's not who we see in Jesus. Are you following me there? God sent Jesus, and he says, Paul says this in numerous places, God sent Jesus to clear up all the questions about who God is. So if your idea of who God is does not match up with the Savior, it's wrong. It's wrong. He and the Father are one, he says in another place. So verse 15, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. Some people have taken that to mean, well, Jesus was the first thing the Father ever made. You know differently now. You know differently now. Because we've seen in Scripture that David was referred to as the firstborn, but he was not the firstborn. The term firstborn scripturally has nothing to do necessarily with birth order. It has everything to do with the authority, being the heir, being the chosen child. Amen? So being the firstborn has nothing to do with birth order. Verse 16. For by him all things were created. Now here's the, here's the kicker. For people that look at verse 15 and say, See? Jesus was created. Well, that means Paul contradicts himself in the very next verse. Because the very next verse says, For by him, by Jesus, all things were created. If by Jesus all things were created, how could Jesus be created? Don't make that phrase more complicated than it actually is. Don't read deep, more deeply into that. If all created things were created by Jesus, Jesus could not be created. Some of you are still looking at me like I'm, like I'm from another planet. It's not that complicated. How many things were made by Jesus? How many things were made by Jesus? Could Jesus have been created? Some of you are still looking at me like I'm crazy. How many things were made by Jesus? All things. All things includes all things. Anything that's ever been created has been created by Jesus. Therefore, Jesus could not create Himself. He was before anything was created. He was not created. You with me now? I think we're all fairly on the same page. He was not created. You're not with me. All right, brother, let's think about this. Talk to me after. How can all things be created by Him and He still be created? It's impossible. It's impossible. 
And so here in verse 16, all things were created by Him in heaven. All things in heaven were created by Him. Does He live in heaven? Is Jesus in heaven? That means He wasn't created. That means He was there before all things were created. And things that are on the earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by Him and for Him. And He is before all things. And by Him all things consist. And He is the head of the body, the church. He talks about the church. And and Jesus is the full authority. This whole passage is about authority. Authority. The authority of the heir. The authority of the firstborn. So the purpose of this passage is not talking about that Jesus was born or created by the Father. It's talking about the authority of the firstborn just like David. David wasn't... David being called the firstborn wasn't about birth order. It was about authority and inheritance and what the Father was giving him. And so here's where we're going to bring all this together and where it becomes so powerful. Okay? So in Matthew chapter 28 and verse 18, we see, if you want to bring that up for me, Jesus says, now what? This is Jesus. He's ascending into heaven. He's ascending into heaven. He's going back to the Father. He's going back to minister for us. And Jesus came and spoke unto them saying, all power, or other verses, other passages, other Bibles say, all authority on heaven and earth is given unto me. And this is why it's so powerful. And it goes on and it says, go ye therefore and teach all nations and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, there's two incredible things about that. Number one, what we're seeing here, if, if a father gives over his inheritance to the son, usually what does that mean? Yeah, the father's dead. That's exactly right. The father's dead. Now, we know that the God the father has no beginning or no ending, so he didn't die. But if the father is giving over the inheritance to the son, what does that mean? This place is yours. You're in charge. You're in charge. So the one that is in charge of our destiny, our world, our planet, and all of the promises, and give, the giving out of those promises is the one who died on Calvary's cross for us. That's majorly incredible stuff. It says that all authority on heaven and earth was given unto me. And he says, go ye therefore and teach all nations. So it's not just for us what we inherit because all the authority has been given to the Son. It's not just about what we inherit. The one who has all the authority has just said, go make disciples. So I want to ask you this question. Can our quest to make disciples fail? If the one who has all the authority here on planet Earth, says to us, go make disciples, can we possibly fail? We can't, can we? So our Father gave all the inheritance, all the promises, all the gifts, all the blessings, all the authority over to the Son. And Jesus says, That's all been given to me, and it's been affirmed by the fact that I rose from the dead. I rose. I came back. 
He, he affirmed that I'm the begotten of the Father. I, I'm the firstborn. I'm the one that's been given all the authority and all the inheritance. And I'm telling you, through me, it's all yours. That's the first thing he's telling us. And the second thing he's telling us is, go make disciples. Your mission cannot fail. Isn't that good news? So the word begotten is a big word. It's a big word. It has a lot of meanings. That's why the newer translations of Scripture have used different terms because it's not just about passing on genes and it's not just about order, birth order. It's about inheritance and it's about authority and it's about God's promises. And it's saying... Jesus was begotten of the Father when He rose from the dead. We knew that the inheritance was His because God the Father didn't leave Him to decay in that tomb. He rose up, and we know the promises of God are yes and amen because He came forth from that tomb. It's such good news. And the one who is in heaven ministering on our behalf working with the Father, working with the Spirit together in unison, He's the one that has all the authority. And I love that. You know why I love that? Because that tells me that I have a representative in heaven that has all the authority of whatever happens here, and that representative knows what it's like to live our life. Knows what it's like to live our life. Go through our trials. Go through our tribulations, our pain, our heartache. He knows what it's like. And that's one of the reasons why the Father said, I'm willing to give you the authority because you've been there, done that. Not that the Father and the Holy Spirit couldn't identify with us, but Jesus is given a special position of authority because He has lived as we live. There's not one pain or heartache that He can't identify with. Maybe He didn't feel you know, arthritis in His ankle, but He knows what aches and pains are. He knows what temptation's like. He knows what illness is like. He knows what... He knows what it's like to be a person. And he's the one in heaven right now ministering on our behalf, and he's saying, pour out heaven's blessings. Let them inherit the blessings of the Father. I'm in charge. Give it to them. Give it to them. So, begotten is a big word, but it's a wonderful word because it means our Savior is the begotten of the Father it has nothing to do necessarily with birth order and everything to do with inheritance. And that inheritance has come to us through the begotten of heaven. Let's stand as we pray and then we will sing our closing song. Father in heaven, thank you for bringing us together today. And Lord, we recognize that human words and human language fall so far short of being able to understand eternal things. It's so easily confused. Our experiences confuse us. Our background confuses us. What we've been told and taught can confuse us sometimes. And so, Lord, that's why you sent Jesus to clear up those questions. What a blessing he is, Lord. Thank you. And Lord, you made him the begotten. You made him the heir. You made him the one that all of the promises from you have come, have flowed through. Thank you, Lord, for that. Thank you that all authority on heaven and earth has been given to him. And through him, we receive that blessing as well. 
And Lord, we want to receive it today. We don't want to continue to live in our kingdom or our ideas of our kingdom, but we want to live in yours. We want to live in your kingdom of heaven as if it's already here. And Lord, also, we realize that you've called us to make disciples. And since all the authority in heaven and earth has been given unto you, and you told us to go make disciples, we cannot fail. Yes, some people will shake their head and say, no, I don't want that. But ultimately, Lord, the mission will be seen through. We will make disciples. We will find those that are hurting. We will reclaim those that have wandered away. We will find the hurting souls. We will find those that need healing. We will be able to minister, Lord, because you said that you have the authority and you've given us that commission and you are in charge. And Lord, we recognize it today. So Lord, please, rekindle in us today. Rekindle in us today that fire for sharing Jesus. Rekindle in us today to go and find those that have wandered away, those that are in need, those that are hurting, those that are sick. Because, Lord, we've heard this commission from the one who is heaven's heir. And, Lord, we want to go forth with those marching orders from him because he's in charge. We cannot fail. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.